Welcome to the Wages of Cinema. We are now recording. Oh, great. <laughs> Did I catch you off guard there? How's it going, Jack? Um, I'm doing well. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, Merry Christmas to you. We are in uh, one of the days of Christmas, so that still counts. It is the second, third, fourth day of Christmas. Now, what did the true love give on that day? Four collie birds. There you go. I'm just trying to get your brain occupied because I, I don't remember all of them after a while. Like Jack's Jewish, by the way. Yeah, I was raised in that persuasion, which might actually I'll I'll probably bring that up again when it comes to one of the movies that you'll be talking about tonight, Andrew. Woo. Um, but uh, we hope you had a Merry Christmas and New Year is about to come up pretty soon. Um, I don't know if. We'll be talking about any of our resolutions by then, but... We do uh, have a key resolution to reveal at the end, but for now, it's probably a good idea to talk about the movies we've seen in the last two weeks. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll start off uh, by, you know, because it's the Christmas season, there are a lot of uh, new movies coming out, and, uh, you know, especially as the end of the year comes around... That uh, always baffled me as a kid, because my family would never think of going out to a movie on Christmas Day. We we always had yeah. plans on Christmas Day. We'd always go sure. to my grandfather's house, mm-hmm. or we'd go to my aunt's house. And the idea mm-hmm. of opening a movie on Christmas seemed absurd to me, until I realized, oh yeah, people do go see movies on Christmas, and well, it's actually really lucrative. <clears throat> well, there's that, but there's also the fact that, you know, Christmas is just the start of it. Then you have Christmas break, which acts as the time when kids can go to the movies. Yeah, and, and, and I didn't know that. When no, I no, no. I, I I can understand why that would be confusing. I mean, I I never really paid attention to that like sort of time difference uh, when I was a kid. In part, as we mentioned, I'm Jew- I was raised Jewish, um, so <clears throat> I mean, I could go a movie on Christmas if I wanted to. It wouldn't have been a big deal. Um, I mean, I don't remember if I did. Uh, I know my mom said that she would often pick Christmas as the day to like go see a movie with her mother. Oh, okay. Yeah, she, for some reason, has these memories locked into her brain of, like, I don't know, going to see uh, the the remake of Cape Fear, I think, came out around Christmas, like, 20 <laughs> or so years ago. Because what says holiday cheer, like, tattooed Robert De Niro, uh, terrifying... Threatening your family. <laughs> yeah, family. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas, counselor. <laughs> So anyway, but, what but anyway, did you see? But at any rate, that comes to. Uh, well, I'll talk about pro- what what was basically uh, you know the biggest movie out right now. It was number one at the box office since it came out, and that is the Hobbit: The Battle of the Five Armies. Um, <clears throat> what we come to with this movie, finally at long last, uh, maybe knock on wood. Uh, Peter Jackson's final entry in the uh, Middle Earth saga. That's... That seems to be the general consensus. Like, it's they might as well have made this uh, the the tagline to this: "The Hobbit, finally, the last one." <laughs> but and I've only seen yeah. the first Hobbit movie, and okay. I was—I uh, don't know what I was expecting, but I liked the first <clears throat> Hobbit movie. Yeah, I it mean... had its it, it had some exciting it had some exciting moments. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it reached. 
uh, the Lord of the Rings sort of quality, but I but I generally think it was it was a different movie. Uh, yeah, a different kind of movie. It's, it, it's, it was. I mean, there's the, a lot less hanging over you in The Hobbit. It's not like, oh, everyone's gonna die if we don't destroy. Well, this yeah. Thing. Well, that's that's the thing. The the stakes are completely different, really. I mean, it's not like The Hobbit doesn't have some kind of backbone in terms of the plot. I mean, The Hobbit, you have, uh, you know, these dwarves come to Bilbo Baggins and they ask him to help them in getting. Uh, in, in going to this mountain to uh, defeat this dragon. Who's yeah, they're going. Over they're, their gold. they're going to to fight a dragon who completely drove them out of their homes, and that's pretty. That's an awesome premise. It's an awesome premise. It's just whether or not the Hobbit has enough material to sustain three movies, which well, seems, and the general consensus seems to be that it doesn't. Yes, that is correct. I, it does not. Everything I heard about the the second Hobbit movie, the Desolation of Smaug, said that it was uh, basically a whole lot of junk involving Legolas and a bunch of elves, and then... There was a lot of junk with that. I mean, the thing that the, the all three movies do, and I, I'm sure you noticed this when you saw the first movie, they involve um, characters like uh, Saruman, uh, you know, the Christopher yeah. Lee character. Kate I was Blanchett. surprised. That's but... not in the book. Like Now, granted, you know, movies aren't books. You can, you know, do whatever you want with a movie. You don't necessarily have to stay faithful to a book. Right. But the idea, though... With the Lord of the Rings books, you know, you have a book that can make an epic movie. So you have three books, three movies, it's an epic trilogy, and the stakes are really tremendous. You have, you know, the possible end of a world due to this, uh, the Eye of Sauron. And the magical ring. The ring to that and that's, them all. And that's a huge yes, story. Yes, that's that a huge story. Definitely, that definitely needs to be three yeah. movies. The Hobbit Whether is... or not you need three extended versions of those movies is another idea yeah. entirely. Mm -hmm. But The Hobbit's one book, and it's the stakes are just not as high. They... So, can... So, but, you know, you gotta make your money. You gotta make your money, and... Well, originally, the studio wanted to do two books. No, not two books, sorry, two movies. And this was actually when uh, Guillermo del Toro was attached to uh, direct. And production went uh, really, pre-production went really long for, for a variety of reasons. Like, the studio went bankrupt. Uh, they couldn't figure out this or that with the budget. And del Toro left, and it was kind of left then to del Toro Peter Jackson. Like, del Toro's got so many irons in the fire right now no, that he's got to yeah. be like... Eventually, he's got to look around and say, "All right, I got to get out of here because <laughs> if I don't do this, Mountains of Madness will never get made." Well, who knows if that'll ever get made? I, mean, I have to like what Guillermo del Toro basically said was, "Okay, I have to go and attach myself to twenty other projects, which may or may not get made." By the way, good luck on Pacific thing. Rim gear. Yes, Pacific Rim Two. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, the sad thing is that that'll probably have more of a likely chance to get made than at the Mountains of Madness. Yes. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm, I'm very excited about that. Pacific Rim 2? Yeah. I, I mean, I'll go see it. Of all it, the films just... I've seen in the last few years, that's the one that I felt deserved a sequel. Because, and, uh, really? And all the stuff that Del Toro said about his ideas for the second one. Well, like, it seems the like thing. the I... movie ended with pretty open and shut. Yeah, but I'm. it's a giant robot movie about fighting monsters. You can get monsters from anywhere. It came from beneath the sea, from a different dimension. Now it can come from space, or maybe it can come from the center of the Earth. I don't know. But then you call Pacific Rim? Do you call Pacific, like, You act space? like you've never seen a Godzilla <laughs> movie, Jack. No, I have. It's just that I just feel like his 
his talents could be used for something like that would last for generations. Pacific Rim is a lot of fun. It's not like you know the highest art. Maybe the mountains at the mountains of madness is a little more important. But I'm just uh, as a person who saw Pacific Rim in the theater with you, by the way, and loved it. I am would I am extremely excited. About I'm not trying to get down sequel. Pacific Rim. I liked it a lot. I just. But I'm, I'm getting off track. I mean, the point is, Guillermo del Toro stepped off. The interesting thing, though, with that, he's still credited as a, a writer on all three movies. Oh, okay. And I I actually kind of got a little bit of maybe some of his sensibility in the first movie, more than anything, like in terms of monsters. You can see his monsters. fingerprints on it. I can see his fingerprints on it for sure. Um, the problem is, like I said, it's just really stuffed up. I mean, the first, the, the Hobbit book is a children's book. It's a book that J.R. Tolkien wrote, like, for his kids to read, like, a bedtime story. Like, he didn't even really f completely figure out all of Middle-Earth mythology when he was writing it. He just had this and that kind of worked out in terms of being, like, this little guy went and fought a dragon and yeah. blah, blah, blah. So... You know, but then he went back and then rewrote it and uh, did this and that. I mean, some of the rewrites were really clever. I mean, probably my favorite scene in the whole, all three movies, or the, my favorite two scenes involve uh, Gollum, which was in the first movie. Mm -hmm. And then in the second movie, when Bilbo uh, confronts the dragon Smaug, you know, I hate saying that, by the way, Smaug. Can I just call him Smog? Smaug, Smog, uh... I know it's S M A U G, but come on. I, I won't I won't nitpick your pronunciation. It's like the one it's like the only name I can think of in a major blockbuster where you sound like you're Jerry Lewis pronouncing something. Smaug Smaug <laughs> Yeah, um but the point is we come to the Battle of the Five Armies. This the movie is actually the shortest of the three. Because wow. the first two movies are close to three hours. This is a little bit closer to two and a half hours. And yet, it's weird because it feels like it's the longest. Because the movie like, where they leave off Desolation of Smaug is basically an epic cliffhanger where Smaug is about to uh, uh, confront like this town that he's going to burn down. And Bill was like, what have I done? Cut to black. <laughs> and, you know. It was all a dream. No, not quite. Um, but so, but the third movie, so it picks up right from there. Um, this isn't really a spoiler because I mean it's in the book. Um, so I don't know if hopefully the book's been around for like a hundred years. Uh, Smog dies in like the first ten minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's um, but then the rest of the movie is basically a long battle sequence, punctured by you know a couple scenes here and there of characters talking. And yeah, as as you noted, uh, the movies and also the last movie were puffed up by this really unnecessary plotline involving Legolas and also another elf played by Evangeline Lilly, who has kind of like a romance with a dwarf for seemingly little reason. Like they just kind of shoehorn in there to have kind of like sort of a love triangle, and then Lee Pace plays like the king elf. And you know, Lee Pace is always is always good. Oh, he was he was fine. Um, you know, uh, although it's he's had kind of a weird year where he's playing kind of bland characters because I thought he was, he was kind of bland in this, and he was the villain in Guardians of the Galaxy. And I thought he was probably my least favorite thing in that movie. Um, but anyway, like the movie, 
it's not like Peter Jackson. He is trying. I mean, he does deliver a lot of action and a lot of spectacle, but it just doesn't amount to much. Ultimately, the real heart of the story is with this character Bilbo Baggins, and Martin Freeman is great playing him. He really brings a lot of heart and soul to him. He's like the one guy who really has to kind of be the thinker among these dwarves. Yeah. And as you may know about dwarves, they just love to rush in and beat the crap out of people. Um, yeah, and, dwarves. Yeah, stupid dwarves. And if, but the the problem is that is that ultimately in this trilogy and especially in this movie, Peter Jackson ends up kind of having co-protagonists with uh, Bilbo Baggins, and then mostly overshadowing him is this character Thorin Oakenshield, yes. um, who's the guy who is kind of like the king of these dwarves, and he wants to reclaim his throne, and and he kind of does that. Um, but then there's a whole element involving this thing called it was it's like a, a like a shiny stone that he really wants, and he just basically is an asshole through most of the movie, <laughs> and then just halfway through it, it's you know he he basically acts like a dick to all of his other dwarves, and then at a certain moment he kind of just comes around and realizes, oh wait, I don't have to be a dick. Okay, let's go out there and fight. And all of a sudden, everybody forgives him, like, they just go into battle. It's... We gotta end this trilogy sooner or later. Let's get it <laughs> yeah, over with. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm... So the movie, it's big spectacle. It's a big spectacle. It does, and... it does, I guess it brings in the audiences. I just, you know, it, it kind of confirms a lot of, not really confirms, but when I read a lot of criticisms of Peter Jackson that, oh, his movies are really bloated and... You know, he you know just goes on too long with sequences, and he doesn't know when to stop. That was kind of what happened here. It's um, there are still some fun moments, but there's just it, it, like I said, if it, it, it says a lot when it's the shortest movie and it feels the longest. And the other two movies had enough padding. Either as that it was. or Peter Jackson Ulti- is a time traveler. <laughs> yes. So ultimately, the movie ends before it begins because it's so long. Yes. Um, I mean, ultimately, I don't know if you've ever seen the animated Hobbit. No. With, no? I with, saw the animated Lord of the Rings. Okay. Well, the animated Hobbit, it's, for what, for its time, it's actually not bad. I mean, obviously the animation, you know, it's Rankin Bass, it's a little dated. Uh, you have, um, I think John Huston does a voice in it, and, uh... Well, one of, uh, the actors from one of my favorite new movies, 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, has, this plays Thor Oakenshield in that movie. Oh, okay, who's that? Uh, Hans Conrad. Okay. Yeah. Huh. That's cool, I should check out for that. But, um, yeah, so Battle of Five Armies, I mean, if you're gonna go, like, I almost felt like I should just see it because... Let's let's just finish this. Let's up. just get it over with. Yes. There you have it. Battle of the Five Armies. Let's get it over. With. <laughs> All right. Talk about another movie you've done because I have kind of a short list. Yes. Yes. Of course. Um. All right. Let's try to get these a little quickly. Um. My next movie I'd like to talk about, which I I saw on Christmas, Tim Burton's Big Eyes. You're gonna love this stuff. Why are their eyes so big? The eyes are the windows of the soul. That's why I paint them so big. I've always done it that way. Why are you lying? And I don't know if you've heard about this movie at all, but um, it's actually it's kind of been overshadowed. I feel like I have, and I feel like I haven't. <clears throat> well, the the story of this movie. This is Tim Burton going back to um, more dramatic territory. Like this time, he's no, you know, there's no Johnny Depp. 
There's no uh, overbearing CGI backdrops. It's just the real world. Um, but in a way, it kind of relates back to um, the movie Ed Wood in a couple of ways. It actually has the same film's writers. Um, and what Big Eyes is about is um, the marriage and kind of contentious uh, relationship of Walter and Margaret Keene. Uh, they were these uh, uh, artists from uh, the 50s and 60s. And what, what was, kind of artists? Like well, painters? Were they sculptors? Uh, painters. But what, where it comes in, I don't know if you've seen any of these uh, kinds of drawings uh, or paintings. that like There's almost kind of like a trademark uh, image when it comes to uh, what we picture from uh, Walter Keene. Uh, or rather, I should say Margaret Keene, but I'll get to that in uh, uh, just a second. In fact, I am going to just quickly Google um, uh, what what I'm trying to get at here. So tell me a little bit more about that movie as you do this. Yes. Um, well, let me just turn around, and this is kind of like what they look like. Okay. Maybe you've seen something that looks like that? I have not seen anything what? like that. But <laughs> well, I what will, basically again, these, they, they were very... <laughs> Well, Margaret Keene uh, was this woman. What, I'm, what Jack is basically showing me is this picture of this very young girl with these huge eyes. Yes. You would almost say anime huge They were, you didn't know if it was from the 50s. Yeah. They're, yeah, that's the, kind of like a But it's a very realistic that. looking picture. Yeah, I mean, what Margaret Keene... So what's the deal did, with these pictures? Why are, why are they painting pictures like this? Well, well, this woman just... That was just part of what was inside her. Like, she just saw the world differently. That she just saw people having giant eyes, and that was all that she drew and painted. And... This is my curse. Yes. They were not really looked at as high art in any way, or any kind of thing as serious art. They were kind of junk. They were kind of kitsch. Uh, but what happened was, um, early on, before she really had made it, because she was just kind of one of these people in a park that would sit and do a drawing for a dollar. A caricaturist. And, yeah, kind of like that. Do, doing caricature, paint pictures and Would drawings. Would she draw caricatures with huge eyes? What's up? Would she draw the caricatures with huge eyes? Oh, yes. yes. Oh, okay. That so was that, the idea. That's how she got her start. Well, yeah, well, that was, yeah, her start. And then she, um, this guy, uh, Walter Keane, uh, romances her. Uh, these, these are played by Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz. Um, good to see Christoph Waltz. Yes. Again. Yes, well, always good to see Christoph Waltz. Um, looks like you're about to say something else there. But, nope. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, but so anyway, he, they, you know, they, 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 they marry. You know, she has, like, a daughter, and she needs to take care of her. A daughter with giant eyes. <laughs> Not quite. Um, Fun but, fact, all those drawings she did were of actual people with giant eyes. I wish. Um, See, that would have been an awesome Tim Burton film. <laughs> Mm. Um, no, but what happens is, um, like the, the this guy Walter Keane, he does his own paintings. Like he just does like landscapes uh, from Paris or whatever. Boring stuff. Yeah, and he doesn't really sell anything. But then people start noticing uh, Margaret Keane's paintings. Um, but he, you know, in order, you know, he 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 he's kind of more of the salesman type. She's more of the person who just sits in a room and paints, and she doesn't really have the greatest social skills. Like she's a perfectly nice person, but she can't really put herself out there. But Walter like Keene, okay, well, don't sell yourself short. 
Okay, never mind. You're too tall for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, anyway, what happens is Walter Keane starts selling her paintings, but it soon Margaret Keane finds out that he's selling her paintings as his own. Oh. So, you know, and this basically what happens is that, you know, she is kind of horrified by this, but she kind of has to give in because, you know, he's providing for her and her daughter. You know, it's the 1950s and 60s. It's back when women were still kind of, you know, under a man's thumb and she doesn't really know any better. Um, so the movie becomes about that sort of fraud. And not a particularly strong person either. So. No, not at first. I mean, the movie, ultimately, that's really what the conflict is. It's It's less about, you know, whether, like, I was talking to my father-in-law at Christmas and he wasn't really sure about seeing the movie because he was like, do they make it seem like the, like the paintings are any good? You know, these people were drunk. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, your, your father-in-law is an art professor. Yeah, exactly. He's an art professor. And he, you know, he didn't even really Intellectuals. know. Intellectuals. Well, he didn't even know anything that much about the history of the Walter and Margaret Keene thing because it just, it wasn't that he, uh, he he it, it never it's even not high art it didn't it's, it never entered much, in his radar it's very much a 50s fad a, it was a fad but the thing that made it like them super successful um and the movie actually opens with a quote from andy warhol who Ooh, and he never says, a good sign well yeah well he says basically you know these these they, they must be good because they make a lot of money <laughs> That's Andy Warhol for you. I mean, Andy Warhol, thank you, you terrible person, for giving Michael <laughs> Bay fuel. <laughs> so what does Tim Burton bring to this story? Um, I mean, he, it seems like something he'd be interested in, but what, is, what does he really put on the screen that's, that makes it his own? I think, well, I, as an artist himself, I imagine he must have had some interest in sort of, uh, uh, so, you know, in the, the subject matter first, but I think... What made me think about it with Ed Wood was the fact that the movie Ed Wood, they never come out and say, they, they never take the point of view of, oh, these movies were good, and Ed Wood was like a misunderstood genius and all that stuff. What they basically, what Tim Burton shows in Ed Wood, as well as in Big Eyes, is that the person making it was sincere. The person making it really did have a love for what they were doing. Um, whether or not they were any good is another question. Yeah. Um, and but the and you have to. It's good to point out that it's from. It, both films have the same time period. Mm. And it's about yeah. niche artists in the 1950s. Whether you niche call artists. It, in the, well, the difference is though. Ed Wood kind of remained kind of like a niche artist uh, through his. People didn't even know who he was until. Like the, the a bad movies book came out in the eighties and then well you made, made a good point nine a really big thing with the Keens that that it, it kind of, that's the big difference is that it looks more at um, feminism really I mean the idea of you know can a woman really make it as her own like the movie points out as well that you know oh women artists you you can't be a woman painter you know and scandal you know and even though you know like. You know, Margaret Keene tries to point out, well, what about, like, Margaret O'Keefe? Like, shut up, you. George O'Keefe. George O'Keefe, sorry. Margaret O'Keefe. Um, see, now it's, uh, I'm, I'm a bad feminist. Um, but yeah, That's probably true, well, I think, but not for the reasons yes, that you say. But Tim Burton, you know, he brings, you know, a feel for the period. He brings, you know, that artist uh, sympathy in a way. You know, again, he's... I have to wonder also if... Uh, 
you know, after the kinds of movies that he's been making lately, which have, you know, you could almost call junk, possibly, like Alice in Wonderland well, or Dark Shadows. Well, not so much junk, basically, uh, you Kind know, of selling out. I just like boilerplate movies. Yeah, well... I mean, they all have his touch on it, but it's not so much... But they're nowhere near as personal as his other films. No, um... I mean, you can like... Uh, I, you have to see them to, to to really think that they're good or not. I haven't no. seen uh, I haven't seen Dark Shadows or Alice in Wonderland. No, I should see Alice in Wonderland though, since I'm a big Alice freak. I you can watch it. Proceed, watch it. It's it's really they call it Alice in Wonderland. It should really be called like like Return to Wonderland or something. The way that like they did Return to Oz in the '80s. Um, and you have like a really like pissed off look right now. Nothing. Um, you know, cause it's like, instead of it being, you know, I, it takes, I, yeah, it's, it's the one thing the I, I will say, no, it's not quite, it's not the same story. What it is, is basically imagine Alice, not all grown up, but older coming back to Wonderland. So it's like Return to Oz. A little bit like that. Yeah. And then there's, there's like a battle although, sequence. Yeah. Although it probably wouldn't have. I will say, Christopher like, no Lee... One, no one cares about Return to Oz. So, if he would call this Return oh, to Wonderland... I know, some, I I know somebody I know somebody who's listening to this who's not going to like that. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> well, I won't say who he is, but he's a big fan. And uh, Christopher of... Lee. What? You just mentioned... Never mind. Oh, no, uh, so, oh, what did was... Christopher Lee has to have to do with this? With you big just his life. No, no, oh, no, I was just about... His name. To... I was just about to say the one good thing in the Alice in Wonderland movie is that Christopher Lee voices uh, the Jabberwocky. How did I know you were going to say he voiced the Jabberwocky? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but the but point back is, to Big Eyes. But, so Big Eyes, yeah, Tim Burton, he brings he brings a really good eye for color. Like, all of the colors in the movie really pop out. Like, just for, like, buildings and cars and places and, huh. you know, people's dresses. Everything is very vivid. The way that... Uh, sort of conversely, where Ed Wood, you know, it's a very rich black and white movie. Yeah. Um. So, you know, in that sense, these two would make a really good double feature, even though ultimately I still probably prefer Ed Wood. Hmm. It's um, hard to top Ed Wood. Yeah, it is. I mean... Yeah, it's interesting you say that about Tim Burton, like, noticing things in the background, because there's something about Tim Burton's Batman films that I really like. Yeah. I mean, whether or not you like them or not, the thing I love about Tim Burton's Batman films is that his Gotham City feels like a real place. Mm -hmm. And I can't explain it. There's just something about when you see people, like, in the second Batman film at the beginning when uh, Christopher Walken's talking to everybody. Yeah. Like, when you'll see all those people in the square, it's like, man, I don't know what's going on, but that seems like a real square. Even yeah. though there are, like, these rotating cat heads and things like that. Yeah. And then when they're, like, in early, when you see Gotham and, the, you know, a giant towering cathedral, I'm like, yeah, that's a giant cathedral. And it's really unrealistic, but it feels like it's really there. Mm -hmm. I don't. Can you shed any light on this? Because it's a good production it's, it's design. Like, it's never, it's never happened to me in another movie. Huh. I've never thought that. I mean, like, even if you have like a realistic scene, like, uh, it, it always feels like, oh, this is a thing in a movie. Well, I, maybe part of that is again attention to detail, attention to making a, a place feel alive. You also had those two movies made in a, in the time before CGI really drowned things out where now um you could have a giant crowd scene and uh well, most of those people are computer generated. Yeah, I mean not to get too off track but just th that just reminds me of uh 
the, of, of an anecdote where uh, Martin Scorsese was taking uh, uh, George Lucas around the set of Gangs of New York, showing him, you know, that he created this giant set in Rome and, you know, pe you know period perfect detail to, you know, 1860s New York. And George Lucas's comment was, uh, you know, you can do this all with computers now. And at that point, someone should have punched him in the face. Um, you punched George Lucas in the face, Jack. I, I could. Um, but the point is, all right, big guys, really good movie. Uh, Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz are really excellent in the film. Uh, there are a couple of moments where, not so much Christoph Waltz, but I feel like maybe the writing, they get, they go a little bit over the top in the melodramatics. Like, there's a scene where uh, Christoph Waltz's character, you know, Walter Keeney, is becoming a little bit more monstrous towards his wife and uh, almost tries to, like, burn the house down. And... Uh, that gets that to be a little bit much. His house too, you know, and it's like you know, Christoph Waltz almost veers on turning to like Klaus Kinski or something like that. <laughs> um, but the thing about Christoph Waltz, it's just great watching him because he, you know, commands the screen. Like he just has that he power has to, yeah, presence and uh, this form. So, so, it, uh, so big eyes. I would recommend see it, it. Would you see it? Uh, do you the recommend theater? people see it instead of Battle of the Five Armies? Yes, I would. Okay. Oh, matter of fact, I would. And I feel bad because uh, in the box office, Big Eyes actually didn't do that great in Christmas. Yeah. Um, why don't you talk about one of your movies? Well, this actually dovetails pretty well because I saw another film about husbands, husbands and wives and artistic uh, struggles. Okay. Uh, Three Colors Blue. Yes. Oh, this is a really interesting movie. I um, A very sad movie. sad watching it no uh, there's a lot of joy to the filmmaking there it's about a woman uh, a french woman who loses her husband and her daughter in a car accident and the rest of the film is her being on her own mm -hmm. uh you know she doesn't want anything to do with her former life she doesn't keep any mementos or doesn't even live in the house that she uh she keeps one thing this blue crystal lamp oh yes but she sells. But she gets. She moves out of the house. She's planning to sell it. Uh, her husband is working on this symphony that she doesn't want anybody to finish, so she trashes it. And uh, she just finds an apartment by herself, and and uh, it is just trying to live a normal life, utterly different from the one she has before. And in I think, and this is part of a trilogy of films. Yes, done by the same director. Yes, What's his, his name, name is. I will try to pronounce it correctly. It's uh, uh, Christoph Kieslowski. Okay, he's a Polish director who yeah. directed these three films. They were actually his last films as well. He died, uh, I believe, like either right after or during the production of Red. All right. So he uh, he directed these three films, which are blue, white, and red. Mm -hmm. uh, all the based on the colors of the French flag, and each one having to do with one of the three tenets of the French Revolution. Liberty, equality, and hmm. fraternity, or I brotherhood. Really know, I didn't really know about that part. I think, well, I, that's what it says on, on the DVD cover. Okay, anyway. well, I, I guess I would take so, the DVD uh, So I believe blue it. is supposed to stand for liberty. Mm -hmm. And 
there is, and you can think about it in the way this woman, uh, she gains uh, a, a great amount of freedom from the fact that everybody she loves is dead. Mm-hmm. She she can basically go and do everything she wants. And she doesn't want to do anything. She mm. has the freedom to do absolutely nothing, which is, in a weird way, enviable. She has no yeah. responsibility. She doesn't have. She doesn't work. She doesn't. Uh, she doesn't. Uh, you know, meet up with friends or or take care of business or anything. She's a little she, isolated. She she isolates herself. Yeah, but uh, and it's because she's still grieving for her family. Yeah. She just. Uh, she, she's just not sobbing all the time. No. Uh, but the thing I lo- uh, the thing that I love about this is the way there's a certain she has a connection to the symphony that her husband is supposedly writing, mm-hmm. and every once in a as she's trying to shut out everything of her past life, but she can't shut out this music. Yeah, it keeps coming back. Right, and I love the way they show that it's every once in a while in the middle of a scene she'll get like it's like a memory just popping back into your mind. Uh, and it's uh, and it's shown with this music. Suddenly, there's this big orchestral flourish or a choral, uh, a choral piece that just sounds out in the middle of the film. The screen goes black, and then it fades back in. Yeah. And she tries to put it out of her mind. And one time, she, this happens while she's swimming, and she just puts her hands over her ears and puts her head under the water, trying to drown it out. But it just. The music just keeps going, and it's a very interesting way of showing. Uh, well, music. Al- well, music is emotion, you could say, and it's a, an emotional connection that she can't sever. Yeah, it, on one level, it is just the music because she. It's rumored that she was actually the one who was writing all of her husband's music. Uh, on one hand, it's just the music coming back to her, but on the other hand, it stands basically for her memory. Like the way that if you lose somebody, suddenly just a memory can come back and send you into a whole flood yeah. of emotions that you you can't handle at the moment, and it was, uh, and I was very much impressed by that. Yeah, I I always remember this one little scene. Uh, part of it was because I saw this one scene before I saw the full movie. Um, was it the one with the mice? Yeah. In, yeah, uh, I was looking for that scene, too. Yeah, and Slavoj Zizek uh, pointed out the, the scene Guide to in The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, and it kind of representing how she is, rep- is seeing this kind of naked innocence and also this, like, you know, new life that has been just kind of... Well, there are a bunch here. of baby rats on her floor, and she, she can't kill them, and... <laughs> Because it's basically a, a reminder of motherhood. Yes, it's a reminder of motherhood. I remember the ending uh, was also kind of epic. Just like how it's presented and the music rising. Almost yeah, had so like a operatic very stirring quality to it. orchestral score. That, and mm-hmm. the whole thing comes together. Uh, yeah, that's one of those movies I want to It's hard for me to say other again. things about this because this is a very different kind of movie than I typically see. It's, uh, you know... It's kind of an art house movie. It's an art. It's an artsy movie where people spend a long time looking out windows and, and not saying things. Yeah, and I would, I, yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's hard for me to get a handle on that, but I can still talk about these little things. Uh, if you're interested, go certainly go see it. Yeah, I get would it recommend. On DVD. I haven't seen the other ones. Uh, yes. I don't plan to uh, because hmm. I have other I have other plans right now. They're not in my top. Priority. Okay. Well, at some point in your life, you should check out Three Colors Red. That's a very good movie. It's actually an excellent movie. I might prefer red over blue. Okay. Um, you know, now we have red versus blue, and I have not seen white. 
So but this was more or less an experiment for me. It was on a list that I had, and I and I saw it just to see it. Well, that's good. It's good to just. But you still, know, it was an enjoyable experience. Well, I'm glad. It's just like that. that time you it try wasn't that a swag. It's like that time you try like uh, that. You, you try like Indian food, and you're like, oh, that was okay. But you're not going to go to an Indian restaurant for lunch all the time. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. You, curry's good once in a while, and then you're like, all right, that's good. Yeah, I don't know if I'll get a craving for it, but no. you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay, back so to my, you. Yep. Um, really talk about um another movie uh that is getting some awards attention mostly for the performances is a movie called wild um this is a movie uh starring reese witherspoon uh again this is another movie based on a true story um and i'm totally blanking on her name now and i want to look it up so that i am not reese witherspoon well i know her name i'm talking about the character that she plays i'd hope i'd know who reese witherspoon was um you know if i did she was that little girl in et I don't know if she's done anything else, but... Uh, no, I think that's Drew Barrymore. Or are you making a joke? I wish I was making a joke. You thought that was the same girl? I, I botched it. Sorry. Oh, poor man. Sorry. Um, all right, so the point is, Wild, uh, it comes from the director of uh, Dallas Buyers Club, and uh, is um, is based on the memoir by this woman, Cheryl Strayed. Uh, and Strayed is spelled S-T-R-A-Y-E-D. Um one of those last names that just sounds very mind continues. Well, actually, it's funny you say that because um, this girl, um, the movie uh, takes place over the course of three months, and Cheryl Strayed uh, is hiking, uh, basically across uh, the Pacific Wilderness. She's cr- she's going basically from like the deserts of of uh, kind of Southern California all the way up to uh, Oregon. Like uh, hundreds of miles, actually, it might be a thousand miles altogether that she hikes it's more uh, than we from start to finish. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Pro- I wonder if it's probably more than we walked in our entire lives. If I would up... bet money that it is. Yes. Um, although there's someone else who might be able to beat it, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, basically, this woman uh, goes on this hike because. Uh, she's had kind of like a messed up life in some respects. Like her, her family died in a car crash, and they never finished the symphony. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, uh, but no. Um, what happened was she had an abusive father. They left. She was raised by her mother, uh, played by Laura Dern, and uh, her her mother was kind of you know hippie-ish and uh, you know tried to always put a happy face on things, even though you know she knew things were bad and. Uh, you know, she had to raise the star by herself and, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of money. Then the mother, uh, died of cancer at a pretty young age. And, um, this, uh, and then Cheryl kind of spiral, has a downward spiral and, uh, gets in a lot of drugs and it kind of like just wants in sex. And, you know, ultimately, uh, she, she was married too. And she, you know, disappoints her, you know, husband to say the least. Uh, so all this is kind of culminating, and, you know, th- that's what makes her... But we don't really notice at first. We just see, like, this woman getting ready to do this hike, and, you know, she's kind of like... And so the movie uses a lot of this past experience, you know, in little flashbacks. Even just, like, just for a few seconds, she'll be reminded of a lot of, like, her past demons. So and the memories take the form of orchestral composition. <laughs> Everything... Are you sure we didn't say the same movie? No, not quite. I mean, 
Although it's interesting, though, because they are, I guess, Wild and Blue are both movies about a woman who's dealing with loss. really, you know, loss and pain. The difference is, is that in Blue, she's kind of like in a in an apartment for most of the film, whereas in Wild, you know, she's by herself through a lot of it, but she's walking. She keeps moving, you know, even though you know she goes through a lot of you know physical turmoil and. Uh, um, you know, sometimes emotional stuff. I mean, uh, you know, she once or twice, there's kind of like the threat of rape possibly in the air. Uh, you know, it's, and, you know, at first you think like, oh, you know, like maybe she'll, you know, have to go against the elements. No, there's more of like, this woman is by herself. What would happen if like dangerous men come upon her? And there's like one moment where you think that's about to happen. And then it's like, a, <sighs> okay, that's, we're all good. And Spoiler. No, well, <laughs> it's hard to spoil this movie exactly because, again, it's it's one of those things where, again, it's more about the journey and destination sort of thing. But it's a good movie. It's a it's a really interesting kind of emotional journey. It it has moments where it could have gone more sentimental and it doesn't go there. Right, it just well, kind of good. lays this person to bear. Um, watching the movie, it it reminded me though of. The one other uh, story that true life story that um, uh, involving a person hiking and walking over a long distance, and that was uh, Werner Herzog. And I don't know if you know about this, and I, I should have probably saved this for my movie pitch, but I'll probably do something else for that anyway, right. because this would make a tremendous movie. Um, and I know about this because he wrote a, a journal while he was doing this long walk and then published it. It's called Of Walking in Ice. And what happened was in 1974, Werner Herzog uh, had this friend, uh, this old uh, like film critic uh, friend or something, who was, uh, was very sick in Paris. Uh, he was in Munich. And, you know, f reasons. Uh, he decides instead of, you know, driving or flying... Um, maybe, I, I'm not quite sure why, I think it was some kind of internal, you know, quest. Ecstatic truth. Ecstatic truth. Um, he literally walked from Munich to Paris to, to see her. Is that a long walk? I don't know, uh, what the... It kind of, going I don't from, know the conversion rate of kilometers to miles. Well, you think about like this, Munich is in Germany, Paris is in France. That's well, yeah, but they're right far. next to each other. Yeah, but that's still far. We'll get a map later. <laughs> Let's get into cartography while we're at it. But the point is, that kind of came to mind. And I'd often wondered, like, could could that be made into a movie? Can you just have a movie about somebody just Anything walking? involving Werner Herzog can be made into a movie. Jack. Yes. I mean, I guess the one problem is, aside from Werner Herzog himself, who would play Werner Herzog? Hmm, that's worth uh, thinking about. Yeah. I don't know who else could fill those shoes. I think... If I were to do a movie, like, adaptation of that journal, which is really fascinating, because, again, it's, it, there's just all these little observations through the book, and he's writing about his, uh, at times, you know, he also just defecates, um, literally. Oh, but that's interesting, that's what too. what have to do. Um, Werner Herzog's a human. But the point is, this movie, Wild, really good performances. Another kind of feminist movie, I guess you could say, along the line, like, but different than Big Eyes, because in this, it's more about, like... Big Eyes was about painting and couples. This one is about walking and the woods. Yes, a little bit of that, and also, you know, trying to 
I mean, you can't ultimately Cheryl strayed by the end. She can't really get rid of these things that have happened to her, but she can try to move on and, you know, become a better person and, be, and try to get a new life that, you know, isn't so much in like misery and kind of self pity and all that sort of stuff. And Reese Witherspoon does a really good job of showing that. And, you know, even showing moments where she gets into really bad, you know, even just like moments that you would cringe. Like at one point her, uh, she's walking so much that, uh, she, like she takes off her boot and she just takes off uh, one of her toenails. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's nice. And then her boot falls off a cliff. <laughs> one of those mo- movie moments where you just go like, oh! So, would you recommend this Good over boy. Battle of the Five Armies? I would also recommend Wild over the Battle of the Five Armies. Okay. <laughs> that's another book. How many more movies do you have to talk about? I, I have... Three, but I'll get through them really fast. Okay, go ahead, and then I'll okay. do mine. Okay, next one up um, is uh, the latest film from Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Inherent Vice. Um, I don't know if I showed you the trailer for this. I should have. Yeah. If I didn't, then I am a fool, because this was one of the best trailers of the year by far. If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin. I need your help, Doc. Maybe you should just look the other way. But if you're Doc, it may all start to get a little peculiar after that. Michael Z. Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. Has vanished. So wh- where would I uh, find him? He's technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. And a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. You got a spare picture I could borrow? Ah! Um, you know, when I saw the trailer for this, I was immediately... I, I normally don't do this, but I watched the trailer like twice in a row. I just... Oh, I do that all the time. I don't always do that, but with this one, I just, I was transfixed. I I mean, I, I'll watch a trailer over and over again just by nature of, you know, they show the same trailer in the theaters. And I've probably now seen a trailer for this movie like a dozen times. Um, the movie, this one has Joaquin Phoenix. This one has Joaquin Phoenix in it again. Pretty different character from, well, I think about, well, he's, not, he's he different is, from his character in Gladiator. He's well, different from his character in the master. In I'm not here. <laughs> He's different from uh, yes, the master. <laughs> yeah. Well, but no, I was thinking about it because this is the second time that Paul Thomas Anderson, Walking Phoenix have collaborated together. Um, it's another movie though where a character is kind of going through uh, a life and. A lot of things are happening around him, and he's kind of witness to it. Is it but kind in this of like case, Forrest Gump or like Goodfellas? No, no, no. Um, closer to the Big Lebowski. Okay. That's that's really the boilerplate uh, comparison because uh, the movie is set in like 1970. Um, he plays a character named Duck Sportello, and he is uh, kind of tasked by this ex-girlfriend of his uh, to help solve this mystery of what happened to this uh, millionaire named Mickey Wolfman. 
uh, played by Eric Roberts. And uh, he, he kind of goes through the movie finding out clues and, you know, finding out people who so it's a mystery may be involved movie. in it. Yeah, it's a mystery movie. You know, very uh, Raymond Chandler-inspired, uh, but it's also 1970s. It's extremely drenched in hippie and uh, weed. Like, throughout the movie, Walking Phoenix is rarely without a joint. Hmm. Um, I... I really like this movie a lot. I think it's really awesome. I hesitate to say if it's like among my favorite of Paul Thomas Anderson's yet. It's the kind of movie that I feel like I need to watch again. What happened is is one of those things where you watch a trailer for a movie. It gets you super pumped up. And the movie that you end up seeing from that trailer is not... It's not it's not at all bad and it's really good, but it's different. It's much different than what you expected and you immediately and you kinda of have to adjust your expectations as you're watching it. It's like the trailer for Inherent Vice, very energetic, very poppy, very like very funny. And Inherent Vice is a very funny movie too, that should also be said. The characterizations are just hilarious. Um, you have a cast that has people, you know, wonderful actors across the board, people like Josh Brolin who plays like a uh, a very hard-nosed crew cut uh, uh, police detective. Uh, Benicio del Toro is in the cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Owen Wilson. Uh, Martin Short pops up in a role that I you would not expect from him in a million years. Almost as like a Phil Spector-esque uh, drug addict um, and record producer. Um, I'm trying to think who else... Uh, Oh man, I, um, I'm not exactly blanking, but there are, there are oh, lots of people. Oh, and Reese Witherspoon is in it too. It's oh, funny okay. to see her. It, and I'll, it took me a second to remember that this is kind of also re not kind of also it is reuniting Walking Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon as they were in Walk the Line together. Oh yeah. Um, You're so right. there's that. The movie is kind of slow. In a way. So that's what's different from the trailer. All there right. are a lot that of shots. The energy you expected is not there. The energy is not quite there, even though, again, the movie's very funny. It's engaging in a, in a weird, uh, sometimes almost psychedelic kind of way. Um, and it's the kind of thing I want to see again. This was also based on a book um, by this author. Maybe he rings a bell to you, Thomas Pynchon? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is the very first adaptation of a Thomas Pynchon book to the screen. Um, for some reason it's just never happened. I guess maybe part of that is because people just have never been able to get through Gravity's Rainbow, which is one of those impenetrable books. Well, we'd like to adapt your book, but none of us have really <laughs> read it. Well, that's, I, the, I, I make Dune. I make Dune. Now, first thing, I don't read Dune. <laughs> you don't need to have read the book, read the book to adapt it. Uh, <laughs> so says Alejandro Jaroski. That's so, just that's just popped in my head. I would also rec- recommend Inherent Vice over the Hobbit, the, the Battle of the Five Armies. Okay, now that you're about to ask to that. All right, next movie. Moving along. All right, we're getting moving. Uh, quick, quick. Um, this movie is a bit different. This is uh, the one movie I didn't see in theaters recently. Um, this is a uh, Canadian surrealist uh, kind of horror movie called Tales from the Gimli Hospital. Um, I've seen this DVD on your shelf. Yes, I've for had years, this. And I've I always had it on my shelf because for years. it has that weird gothic-looking font 
mm-hmm. on the DVD spine. Yes. It, that was that movie. And now you tell me it's a Canadian surrealist film. Yes, it is. You've been holding out on me. I'm sorry. Apology well. accepted. <laughs> Get on with it. Um, this comes from uh, the filmmaker uh, Guy Madden. Are there any dwarves key. in this film? Not exactly. Okay. Um, for for those of you who might not know or want to be reminded, Guy Madden directed uh, the saddest music in the world, uh, Brand <laughs> Upon the Brain, uh, My Winnipeg. Um, his films are often very characterized by being in black and white, having uh, a 1920s, 1930s feel to them. Um, it almost feels like you've just picked up this film from like a dumpster and it still has a lot of dust. Um, and it's been kind of unearthed and discovered for the first time, mm-hmm. uh, much the way that maybe you would find like a racer head. Um, and this was movie. I think his, I think this was his first feature from the eighties and God, how do I, how do I describe this thing? I think you've said it all with Canadian surrealist film. So, do you recommend this over Battle of the Five Armies? Yes. Good enough for me. Um, Well, I would say that before... before, I just have this one thing to say. Now... Yeah, so this movie was really weird. It involves... Without without going too much in depth in it, it involves a hospital um, where a lot of really strange things happen. Um... They're very violent things, uh, stories that happen on beaches and in the woods and uh, semi-homoerotic fights. Um, uh, the best way that I could describe it actually would be, um, and this is, I guess, kind of a cross-plug, I wrote a review of the film, but I did it as a poem. Because what happened was, when I started watching the film, I, I thought to myself, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to remember all this. I want st- I I'm going to do something I don't usually do anymore. I'm going to take notes while I watch this movie. <laughs> but by the way, I was writing the notes. I started looking at them, thinking, I'm kind of like writing poetry here. The way that I'm writing these things, it's reading like a poem. And so I ended up writing like this long epic poem. Uh, Have that- you ever really stopped to feel the couch? Man, I know all those bristles, all those really nice contours and the patterns, and the patterns. Yeah. Um, so if you want to check it out on my blog, sanitarium.blogspot.com, uh, I wrote a, a review of the film. And if you want to understand more about the movie, go there and it might make even less sense. But I tried. See the movie. All yes. right. Your last film. And uh, the last film is... Do you want to talk about your movie? No, um, I'm saving it for last. Okay. Uh, well, my last movie is uh, something which I had seen before, but I decided to watch again because as I am uh, trying to formulate my uh, end-of-the-year list uh, for best movies, I wanted to watch this one again because I wasn't quite sure where it would lay or if it would even stay in the top ten, and that is uh, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Talk to me. Samantha, how was your week? Uh, I don't know, Dad, it was kind of tough. Billy and Ellen broke up, and Ellen's kind of mad at me because she saw me talking to Billy in the cafeteria, and you remember that sculpture I was working on? Well, it was a unicorn, and the horn broke off, so now it's a zebra, okay? But I still think I'm going to get an egg, right? Mason, 
Uh, how was your week? Well, Dad, you know how it's kind of tough. Joe, he's kind of a jerk. Actually, he stole some cigarettes from his mom. And he wanted me to smoke them. But I said no, because I knew what a hard time you had quitting smoking, Dad. How about that? Is that so hard? Dad, these questions are kind of hard to answer. What is so hard to answer about what sculpture are you making? It's abstract. Okay. Okay, that's good. See? That's I didn't I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know you were even interested in abstract art. I'm not. They make us do it. But dad, I mean, why is it all on us though? You know what about you? How was your week? You know, who do you hang out with? Do you have a girlfriend? What have you been up to? I see your point. So we should just let it happen more natural, right? That's what you're saying. Okay. That's what we'll do. Starting now. This is the one with Ethan Hawke, right? Yes, Ethan Hawke is in it. He I have heard people dad. reverse their assessments entirely of Ethan Hawke based on this film. Who are these people that would do Craig it Craig Johnson from Welcome to the Basement doesn't really like Ethan Hawke because he says he's he's all vulnerability and no charm. But huh. after he saw Boyhood, he's like, all right, Ethan Hawke, you are pretty awesome right now. I take back everything I said. All right, he didn't exactly say that, but... Well, he, his, all right, he, so the one person you heard about that from was that. Yes. Okay. I wonder, now, having said that, I have to wonder if, have they ever done any of the before movies on uh, the scene? It Have they done before Sunrise, before Sunset, before Midnight? I don't know. All right, so, because in those movies, I think he's also pretty awesome. I think he's a good actor, generally speaking. But uh, what this movie is, is... Uh, the reason it's being hailed by a lot of critics as not just the best movie of the year, but like one of the greatest films of like the century, basically, is what Richard Linklater did was he made a film over 12 years. Like he would basically do a little short film each year chronicling uh, this this young boy growing up into a man, basically. Uh, in a sense, it's like a so when did he start? Uh, I think around 2001, 2002. And this actor, Eller Cotrain, was seven years old. By the time the movie is done, he is 18 years old. And so you actually see this progression from, you know, again, childhood to adulthood. Or you see that development of adolescence. You can even... I, I could even sort of notice that moment where, for example, you know, your voice suddenly drops a little bit. You know, and you're, you know... Your balls drop, basically. <laughs> I, right. I feel like I embarrassed you just it's by biology. saying the word balls. <laughs> testes. All right, if you have to delve technical, testi testes, one, two, Do three. Do we have that map of Germany and France yet? <laughs> I'll look it up if you are really curious. So tell me so tell me more. Boyhood. It starts in 2001. Yeah, and basically, and... yeah, but it's this family... Um, Ethan Hawke is the dad in this family, and right. Patricia Arquette's the mother. They're not together at the start of it. Like they, the, the backstory you kind of gleam is that they had uh, this boy and this girl. The, the, the girl is like the older sibling, the boy is the younger one. And they had them when they were a little bit too young, like when they were in their early 20s. Um, and so the mother's kind of raising these two kids on her own. Ethan Hawke kind of shows up every once in a while when he's you know, away from doing, you know, his work and trying to also become kind of more of a man. Um, and he's kind of like the cool hip dad. He's like, I have like this big black, I have a GTO type car. I'm going to take you around. We're going to go bowling and have fun. Um, and the mother is more like, 
All right, come on, let's get, let's go to school. Let's she's got to do all the work. Yeah, she's got to do all the work. She's got to be, she's got to be the adult. She's got to be the one who's kind of more in charge, and she has more stress. Um, and, and so again, uh, so over the course of the movie's kind of long. The movie is two hours and forty six minutes. I'm gonna say, but still short. Still, never mind. No, it's not quite as it's not quite as short as. Uh, Actually, it is a little longer than The Hobbit. That's very interesting. Um, I would say that um, this movie is most fascinating because it takes things that are just in daily life, things that you might not think are that dramatic, but it kind of builds up in terms of looking at how a person develops and how everything that they're watching and experiencing has some kind of impact on them. And things also in, in pop culture uh, will have an impact. Like there's, a, there's a scene where uh, the, the kids go to um, like a book release for one of the Harry Potter books. Um, you know, you see them all dressed up in their Harry Potter clothes and they all get a book and you think like, you know, normally in any other movie, this scene would probably be cut. There's nothing exactly advancing the story in this scene. It's just something where you see, oh, hey, they got the Harry Potter book. But it's one of those moments that, you know, when you think back on, you know, your childhood and certain experiences you've had, moments like that really stick out as, you know, being impactful. That, you know, when you got, you know, like Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince or whatever, that changed your life. Or Or it just had, like, a moment that made you develop a little bit more, even if you didn't realize it. Um... And I mean, there are also there are some dramatic things in the film, like the the mother uh, ends up ha- having another husband who ends up being kind of like a abusive alcoholic asshole. Um, and why is it in movies every time a woman gets remarried, she gets remarried to like this terrible husband? <laughs> like that happened in like Radio Flyer. It ha- hmm. it's ha- or what uh, else? Or this boy's life. Have you ever heard of that movie? I don't think so. That's or just, like even when he, Fanny and Alexander, which you haven't seen. Well, no one else has seen Fanny and Alexander, but still, that's the point. <laughs> I just smacked you for saying that. She gets the, the mother gets remarried to this really strict guy, and they ha, and they no longer have fun in the theater or anything. Why is it? Why is it always that way? Um, it's do ju- do, it's something do divorced that does... women have really terrible judgment after they get divorced. Um, I don't think so. Why does the, why are the movies always like that? I it's it's a good question. I I wish I could tell you. I um, you don't know. I think it's you've just seen one... more movies than me. It's a it's a trope. I will admit. Yeah, I'm sure that, but it also sets up uh, um an obstacle that, you know, either can be conquered or not. I mean, you know, in, in boyhood, what what you end up seeing is that the mother really decides, all right, we have to get the hell out of here. I'm taking you kids away from here. Um, there's a little bit of an extra bit of interest there for me, uh, especially seeing the movie again, because, uh, you know, when she, remar- when she marries this guy, he has... Like his own kids, right? And the, after they, after the mother picks up, you know, the two kids and leaves, you know, the daughter asks her, "So what are going to happen to the other two kids? You know, are we going to see them again?" And she's like, "I don't know." And you, um, lo and behold, we never see them again. 
Huh. And you kind of, I kind of wondered watching it, what happens to those kids? You know, they're probably going to have a really terrible life. The, 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 the husband abandons them in the woods and they find a gingerbread house. And uh, whether or not they escape the witch is uh, left to another movie. Yeah. Yeah, not not Boyhood. I'm sensing that you're not liking my idea. No, 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 no. That's just a really weird train of thought to take from what I was describing. Eh, why not? Like, so you go from alcoholic, abusive father to the gingerbread house. Sure. All right. Um, it happened in Pan's Labyrinth, too. Okay, well... Wife Pan... remarries a terrible man. We gotta write this down. Alright. <laughs> Would you recommend it over Battle of the Five Armies? Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I would... See, this is our litmus test for tonight, I guess. Like, apparently all movies are up against The Hobbit and are losing. Oh, um, the Hobbit's gotta learn to defend itself. Yes, it does. Um, the thing I would say, though, uh, one one more thing about Boyhood is that, again, it's being touted as, you know, the, the best movie of the year by a lot of film critics. It's been i've heard some people also say just on uh on radio uh people who might not be experts but in a way they might be the most correct because they just know as pop culture more that boyhood will end up getting best picture and best director at the oscars Hmm. like it's getting that kind of major attention because again when you think back in cinema history nothing has really been achieved like this before you know having a movie where you know, they shot for, like, like 45 days over the course of 12 years. You mean add all 12 years together and then it equals 45 days? Like, 45 days scattered among 12 years. Oh, okay. That, that, that sort of uh, thing is what I'm saying. So, in other words, like I said, you know, you have kind of what is in that's essence... That's a very interesting bit of trivia, I think. Well, not really... Tr- yeah, that's, that's, that's very trivia. interesting. Yeah, well, that was what was, you know, an experiment. I mean, you have to think about... It, I mean, this is what a lot of critics have asked, like, the director over and over again. You know, what if something had happened? Like, what if you died? <laughs> and actually, I think I read that if, if that had happened, there, the contingency was Ethan Hawke would have finished the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, the interesting thing, though, that no critic actually asks the director, though, is not even so much, you know, what if something happened to the actors or, or you in those 12 years? What would you have done? It's what if the actors get less good at being <laughs> acting. Or like Natalie Portman. <laughs> hey, she's still a good actress. Oh. And it depends what the That's movie debatable. is. Well, um, all right, but the point is, um, the male actor in the movie, the main boy, it's interesting watching the movie again because... The parts I liked the first time, I liked a lot more. Like, the first, I would say, two-thirds of the movie is really great. It's really fascinating to watch. And yet, once he becomes a teenager, the actor playing him, he's not as good. Like, in a way, being a kid actor, there's something, maybe he's a little less self-conscious. Maybe it's the story around him being better. But, you know, the whole thing where he's a teenager, he's kind of just, you know, what am I going to do with my life? I wonder what I'm going to do. Like, that's basically the main thrust of the last third of the movie. And it's not bad. You know, it's still good. But the actor isn't really as compelling. He's not really... He's kind of more just very passive, kind of observant. And um, 
And yet, I would still recommend it. I think you would like it, too. I think you might want to check it out at some point. Um, it's the kind of movie that you don't think would hold your attention. Um, there's there's even there's scenes that have kind of minutia to them. Like, at times, you're just watching characters playing video games, which or watching internet videos. And yet, again, a lot of this adds up to what, you know, it's... Uh, it gives it texture. There's... Uh, in a way, what Richard Linklater decided to set out to do, and he mostly accomplished, was basically doing a fictionalized, uh, dramatized movie version of what the Up series is. These are these documentaries uh, that have been going on uh, for a long time, where every seven years, uh, this filmmaker, Michael Apted, uh, uh, he started when these kids were seven, uh, and basically picked these seven kids... Not seven, I don't know if there were seven kids, but there were these group of children, and every seven years there's a documentary about them. And so now now they're up to, the last one I think was 56 up, so this has been going on since like the 60s. Wow. So Richard Linklater decided to kind of take that concept only, uh, you know, and, and the main tagline with the Up series is, you know, give me, you know, give me the child and one day I will make him a man. Or something. I, I, I'm, I'm totally fucking up that tagline now um so point is boyhood go check it out um it's not quite as great as you might have heard but it's really good all right so let's talk about your movie all right the last movie is very simple one that probably almost everybody has seen and if you haven't seen it then i don't know what to say to you but you, except you should see it soon it's a wonderful life it is. Yes, it's wonderful news. For when all these wonderful people get into the swim, it's a wonderful life. For never before has any film contained such a full measure of the joy of living, the drama of living, and above all, the glorious romance that makes this such a wonderful life. Don't you ever get tired of just reading about things? Yeah. Hey, what are you doing tonight? I don't want to get married to anybody, you understand? I want to do what I want to do. And, and you... I watched <laughs> this on Christmas Eve, as, I, as I've as i done for the past seven years, I believe. Seven With years. my family. And I love It's a Wonderful Life. It's... It, it's... Uh, it, it's one of those weird things, like... It's one of those films that came out when it did, and it didn't make much of an impact... I mean, pro it, it made some money, but it, it there was no hint of what it, what it would become. Hmm. And then over the years, it built up. The fan base built up. People kept watching it and watching it. And even Frank Capra was surprised. He was director of It's a Wonderful Life when he yeah. he'd get letters from people talking about It's a Wonderful Life, which was just this film he had done. Uh, never thought thinking it would be big, but it's a Christmas standard and for very good reason. Do you remember the first time you saw It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I, I unlike I guess some a lot of people, I did not see it when I was a kid. I didn't see this movie until I was uh, twenty-two. Really? Yeah. So the first time I saw this movie was I guess eight years ago, and I remember it was kind of a big deal because when I told people I'd never seen it, they really freaked out. Like, what's the matter with you? And I had seen. The funny thing is, It's a Wonderful Life has permeated our culture so much that I have seen parodies of It's a Wonderful yes, Life it's before a wonderful I saw Life it. Life is like, you know, I saw like, it's like other stories like A Christmas Carol or, 
I don't I don't know. Like it's like one of those things that always gets its own version in like every television series, like sometime around Christmas where someone says, Oh, I wish I'd never been born. Or there's like a stingy guy who gets visited by three ghosts. It's like, it's one of those things that's always parodied. Well, the thing is the first time I got aware to it and it was kind of interesting that these two stories were paired up because in a way they're kind of similar, uh, in a sense. Um, uh, maybe you can disagree with me. I'm sure you will. Um, Years ago, um, Beavis and Butthead did a Christmas special where half of the half of the hour was a parody of A Christmas Carol, and half of the parody was It's a Wonderful Life. Where in the Beavis and Butthead version, uh, Butthead is shown by uh, the angel what would happen if he was never born, and everything is much better off. Yes, uh, <laughs> the nostalgia critics went, went that way too. Um, like all the people on his channel, are like, oh, what if I had never existed? And everyone else on his channel is super successful. When did they do a parody of It's a Wonderful Life? Uh, uh, it was a few years ago. Yeah, but that whole idea again, and the thing that interested me seeing the movie, I thought going in that was going to be the whole thing, but the movie actually has a lot that happens before that. That's really yeah. the, that's really the third act. Yeah, and when that, James and it's, Stewart it's a, finally, it's a very gets well known point. film, and that's and people don't realize that it has a very unconventional structure. Like, think back to English class when you learn about plot structure. Mm -hmm. You have um, you have the introduction and uh, the setup. What is what is that whole thing called? Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, introduction, you learn everything you know about... You need the to know premise. About the, you learn the premise and the, the exposition. Okay. You learn everything you need to know about the characters and who they are. And then something happens where their life changes or or something unusual happens to them, and you have the rising action. Then you get to the climax where everything gets so exciting, the falling action where everything gets resolved, and then you have the conclusion, the denouement, where everything gets wrapped up. Three it's a Wonderful structure. Life is two-thirds exposition. Hmm. It's... Two-thirds of the film are spent explaining who George Bailey is and why he's so important and everything he's done in his life. Yeah. And you don't and you don't get to the you don't get to this inciting incident until two-thirds of the way in when his uncle Billy loses the money. Mm -hmm. That and everything starts to fall apart and then it gets more exciting and then like he re he realizes he's going to lose his business, everything he's worked for through all his life is going to fall apart. He meets Clarence, his guardian angel, and he makes that wish. I wish I'd never been born. And then everything just really takes off. And then you have the climax where he's finally like, I, he realizes the big trouble. And then everything gets resolved and that's it. But that only takes up like maybe 40 minutes. Hmm. Where he sees that, where he sees what it's like, where that he was he never sees born. The, he sees the fantasy He sees realm. the alternate reality where there is no George Bailey. And I like to... And I like to say that It's a Wonderful Life is like a really long, really good episode of The Twilight Zone. That's an interesting way of putting and, it. And there has been like a Twilight Zone where like where I'm an older, sure there has there been. has like where an older like teacher it looks back on his life and he can't really see what he's done with his life and he's as, as he's about to retire and then he does see like the people that he's he's touched. It's a, but, it's, it's an ideal dramatic device that you almost wonder how it wasn't done before or maybe it had been but this was really the first notable instance of having a character i can't think of another film before it that's ever that's ever tackled it and everything that's come since owes that's tackled the same subject owes a lot to it yeah i, I, I don't think you could have had anything like uh, uh 
You probably couldn't have Back to the Future like, Part there, Two. There was a there was a movie with Nicolas Cage, where he saw like a different the like, Family Man, the Family Man, which I know which which takes place around Christmas too, and it doesn't also, it? And it was also shot in part in Tina. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I almost could have met Nicolas Cage. Almost. When I was fifteen. But you years hadn't seen old. It's a Wonderful Life, so who knows what he would have done to you. I guess. But uh, it, all, it almost has nothing to do with Christmas. Christmas is like a backdrop that has... Uh... Yeah, it's a wonderful life. So here's here's my question to you. Is it really a Christmas movie? I think... Do you think maybe it's in part about because of the whole aspect of... I mean, obviously at the end well, of I've... it, it's Christmas. But is it because it involves like... Was it mean to be like a good person or to be I, or be or be selfless the way that I guess Jesus Christ was? I don't think that's so much the thing about it, but I think there there are thematic similarities between Christmas and the uh well it's like let me let me try to let me try to settle this. Like can you like, wa- let's imagine <laughs> can you watch it's a wonderful Im- life? Let's as imagine a, a Christmas carol, the other seminal Christmas story. Yeah. Does the fact that it's Christmas in A Christmas Carol have anything to do with the life of Ebenezer Scrooge? Um, I mean, does it have to happen at Christmas? Well, well, I, well, I that, would... well, an aspect of the backdrop is the fact that you have people bringing up to him, you know, sir, it's Christmas Day. It's Christmas. Can't we do this? Can we? Yeah, it's Christmas. But that... well, you know, the, Bob Cratchit's having Christmas dinner. There's all of this warmth and joy, and this is a day where we should stop the usual grind of everything that we do every single day in, day out. And Scrooge is like, no, no, I'm, I refuse to believe that. We're going to work. Yeah. So there is that aspect to it. Yes. But could you, but I'm, uh, the point I'm trying to make is, can you make a story, can you make a story where S- Scrooge gets visited by these three ghosts and it doesn't happen on Christmas? I mean, the ultimate point is, look, Possibly, is Scrooge but looking it, back on it? Is Scrooge looking back on his life and seeing what, and seeing how he's changed and what? Uh, it's like a self-reflection thing. Mm-hmm. Christmas is, uh, I think, I think you do need Christmas for both these ideas because Christmas is a holiday that comes at the end of the year, very near to New Year's, and it it involves um, generosity, but that's not George Bailey's problem. I, I have a thought that actually um, should be mentioned when it comes to It's a Wonderful Life. I, if you'll give me just a second. I just remember. I, I really well, as want you're to doing that, up. let me let me explain because what I'm talking pe- about. Because there's a piece of trivia um, that I should read to you when it comes to just how Frank Capra came to make this movie in the first place. Um, the the thing I was thinking of, it does have something to do with Christmas. In that, I think Christmas is kind of about self reflection. Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, how do I explain this? Oh, I should tell you, by the way, the movie was actually a flop when it, it first came out. It was a flop, really? Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> Which is another, another reason why it should take everybody by surprise. I, in a way, it became sort of like a cult film and then outgrew its cult status, I'd suppose. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, well, that, that it's, a movie like It's a Wonderful Life really owes a lot to television television made that movie yes and like, that gets back to the way i saw it i saw it on channel four hmm. sometime in december when i was maybe 12 or 11 okay. years old and i i wasn't looking for it's a wonderful life but i found it and at the end at the end of the movie i was like oh man that was awesome 
yeah, I felt really emotional about it at the end. Huh. And it's it just it's it's weird that it could that it could flop like that and then just build over time. Yeah, well, it was actually it. it I'm going to read you a piece of trivia now that might kind of for you. All right, go ahead. In 1947, an FBI analyst submitted without comment an addition to a running memo on quote communist infiltration of the motion picture industry, recording the opinion of an industry source who said that. It's a Wonderful Life's obvious attempt to discredit bankers, quote, is a common trick used by communists. <laughs> <laughs> because bankers are so sympathetic in real life. I know. They're only trying to do good. Even capitalists don't like bankers. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> People took things way too seriously in the mm. late 40s. You'd think winning World War II would get people to loosen up. Yeah, I think so. Um, there was one more thing, though, that... Um, uh, but Christmas, it Oh, and a uh, uh, Burton Ernie. Yes. <laughs> and that's the other big cultural impact. It gave, the cop is na in the town is named Bert. The cab driver is named Ernie. And they use those two names to make the lovable puppets that we all know and love. Mm -hmm. That's where their names came from. Yes, indeed. But I think people associate Christmas culturally with this sort of moment where supernatural things can happen, yes. like uh, Santa Claus or the coming of Jesus and well, angels and well, why do you elves and things like that. Well, that's why, I mean, granted, It's a Wonderful Life is a movie that all ages watch, but when you look at, you know, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and even just the concept of Santa Claus, that's a very fantastical you know, kind of thing to it. Yes, but those are stories for children. It's a Wonderful Life. It very much speaks to adults. I mean, it's the mm. struggle of one adult who has to who has to choose between his dreams and between helping people. Mm. And his pro and George Bailey's problem is not that he makes wrong choices, but that he can't really understand the importance of his choices. Like he has this yearning to go to college and to to be a like, and to be this big person, to do miraculous things, and he can't do those things in Bedford Falls. But he chooses Bedford Falls time and time again because he he knows that things will go downhill if uh, if Mr. Potter takes over, and uh, you know, and his father's legacy will go down the drain. And right. he and that's that's part of his fault. He can't handle it. And it's only by seeing what life would have been like without him that he finally real realizes the importance of not just himself but of, of the choices he made yeah no it's all about you know just like um you could say like when I was he talking... learns to let go of himself in a way uh, like uh he learns to accept that his dreams are gone and that even with his dreams uh even if he had gotten everything he wanted then he wouldn't uh things wouldn't be nearly as good <laughs> okay there was the other piece of trivia i was I was having trouble finding, but I think that I had read somewhere that either James Stewart or Frank Capra said that actually fighting World War Two kind of had an impact for them in making this movie, because like, so, like such as well, like in a in a well, way, Frank Capra made a big series of uh, army films that are actually quite good. Yeah, for uh, trying to teach soldiers about the war, mm -hmm. but uh, but maybe in the sense of this is just me guessing that after so much uh, like. You know, death and 
destruction and all this you know what what can you have you know a story that you know uplifts the spirit again well you could do that with a lot of different movies yeah i don't think it explains anything about how it's a wonderful life became the way it, it did maybe not but i mean certainly uh, it certainly owes a lot to television as you yes. said it owes a lot to I, christmas something i actually wanted to bring up i I, f- I think we had a conversation years ago about it's a wonderful life and something involving james stewart that like if he was really essential to making the film work or you mean, you mean Jimmy Stewart? Jimmy Stewart. It, whether it would have worked with anybody else's performance? Yeah. I don't think I was talking to you about this. Huh. I thought maybe it was you. I don't know. I, I had some conversation about Throne of Life. I thought it involved Mr. Stewart, but I guess not. But, but, all right, but so, It's a Wonderful Life is really cool because... Here's here's my question. All right. This or Hobbit? Uh, I would recommend It's a Wonderful Life over Battle of the Five Armies, but I haven't seen go. Battle of the Five Armies, so take that for what it's worth. Okay. Uh, the thing, I love It's a Wonderful Life because it's a, it's a weird film that, it has weird things in it. Like, it deals with an alternate reality. Yeah, I mean, the movie and opens, the first shot is stars talking to each other. That's not the first shot, but it's early on. Oh, I thought that was the first shot. No, that's, no, it's not. It's, like... It's just like exteriors of buildings as people are praying for to help for to God. Oh, to help okay, yeah, it's Bailey. one. Of the, it's one of the shots after. That. Yeah, and yeah. then it's God and Joseph are talking to each other about. Oh, we gotta save George Bailey. Mm-hmm. They, they have a little more enthusiasm than that, but still. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it deals. It it has like a in a way it's it has a sci-fi premise like an alternate reality where you didn't exist. Yeah, uh, and it has some real. It has some kind of eerie shots in the uh, in those scenes where uh, George Bailey's looking around the world that, where he doesn't exist, and he's just like uh, he, he looks all like he's he, like he's going crazy. He probably feels like he's going crazy in that scene. Yeah, and it, and it's and it's kind of a chilling thing. What if the people you knew all your life had no idea who you were? Yeah. Well, and what if there was a world where you, you didn't make a difference and things like that? See, I have to wonder, though, if people would naturally adjust. or I mean, because the thing is, it's a wonderful life. Everyone is completely miserable in the world where George Bailey didn't exist. Well, I don't know if they're completely miserable. Well, they, they seem well, a lot they, worse they, off. Th- yes, they are They are worse off. Mm-hmm. Except for Ernie. No, no. He, he's definitely worse <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> But, I mean, it's even the idea of people who you've known all your life who act like they don't even know you. Mm. That's that's the weird thing. Like, George Bailey visits his mother, mm-hmm. and she has this look of, like, who who the hell are you? And then imagine, like, going up to your mother, and she and she just gives you that look and doesn't, and looks at you like you're a crazy person when you try to explain. And then the idea that George Bailey saved his brother from drowning back in, uh, when he was not back uh when his brother was nine years old and then he visits the grave of the mm-hmm. brother he could he didn't save. yeah but ultimately this all is kind of you know a lot all this is adding up to you know don't jump don't kill yourself yes do not kill yourself yes live <laughs> you know the ultimate message of the movie is you know it, you know have a you know it's you know it, it says it's a wonderful life why don't you just have a life yeah <laughs> well george Bailey has a wonderful life it's just uh you, you don't realize exactly exactly what the thing is yeah like the title could almost be said like hey it's a wonderful life <laughs> i don't think that's the tone they were going for jack yeah, but i, if I take your meaning but there's a funny thing when i watched it this time i was watching it with my brother and 
there's a scene where George's younger brother has gone off to college and he's coming back. Uh-huh. And the plan is for him to take over the building and loan so that George yeah. can finally just go out and do something for himself. Oh, yes, I remember that. And uh, his brother comes <laughs> back and says, oh, meet my new wife. And his wife's like, oh, my, my father offered him a job. And... <laughs> And George and George realizes, oh, the plan is gone. And my brother mimed this scene of George Bailey grabbing his brother by the neck and shaking him back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you did this. I mean, it job. <laughs> Are you numbskull? I could... <laughs> Very funny. Oh, it was great. Yeah. So it's a wonderful life. Uh, go see it. Uh, preferably on If you Christmas are one Eve. of the five people in this world who has not seen It's a Wonderful Life, I hope uh, you go see it. And if you have seen it, I hope that you learned a little something interesting about it. Yes, hopefully you have. Um, okay, let's take a short break, and then we will come back with our main segment. <laughs> 